Fridays with Frankie with your host, Frankie Grande. Conversations and kikis with some of your favorite queer icons and allies. This week's guest for our Red, White, and Q edition, President and CEO of GLAAD, Sarah Kate Ellis, trans icon and Virginia State Delegate, Danica Rome, Pennsylvania State Representative, Brian Sim, and Director of Political Programming for Channel Q, Ryan Basham. Now, here's Frankie. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Fridays with Frankie, a four-part series where we'll talk about all things from queer politics and gaming to catching up with some of your favorite Broadway stars and celebs. We'll have great conversations and lots of fun, obviously. So uh, hopefully we will leave you feeling great about our amazing community filled with such incredible people. Today, we're going to talk all things queer politics and find out just what we are facing in this era of just say gay. That's what we call it. Just say gay. Uh, Plus, we'll find out if gay marriage is really under threat. We'll talk to Sarah Kate Ellis, president and CEO of GLAAD, about what the media can do in our current crisis for the LGBTQ plus community. We'll meet Pennsylvania Representative Brian Sims and talk about the new bill banning conversion therapy. And we'll have a great conversation with the iconic Danica Roem, the first openly transgender person elected and seated in a U.S. state house about her new book, Burn the Page. Plus, we'll find out what we can do as a community to support one another and help to keep the momentum going in the progress for equality. But... Let's meet my first guest. He was the LGBTQ advisor to the Biden campaign. He's director of political programming for Channel Q and just the person we want to help us set the table for all things queer politics. Welcome, Ryan Basham. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so delighted that you were able to be here today. And as our very first guest on, on our very first episode. So this is this is oh, very, very exciting. Oh, my God. Yeah. And, you I know, I feel like, so special. You are very special. And, um, you know, on this show, like I just wanted to be able to give a space where we tackle some big topics that aren't necessarily always examined through a queer eye and through a queer lens. And for this episode, we wanted to just like look at what's going on in this country, which is just, you know, you hear many, many people from all over the world talking about it and about how the country is so divided and how everything is on fire. So let's take out our gay reading glasses, put them up on the face and look at what's happening in this country. Um, But before we get there, I would love to know, because I'm not a political expert by any means, you're the expert on the show. I would love to know, what does it mean to be an LGBTQ advisor to the Biden campaign? Like, what did you do? Great question. You know, actually, the Biden campaign did some really revolutionary stuff in the terms of presidential campaigns. They they went out of their way to bring on advisors for over, I think, a dozen disadvantaged groups to help organize them specifically. So there are people dedicated to the LGBTQ community, AAPI, African-Americans, veterans, um, women, so on and so forth. And so I and a a handful of really incredible people got to, you know, be in the muck for several months as a part of the campaign. And we, we focused on organizing LGBTQ people across the country and organizing in the political sense means getting them out to vote and getting them to get their friends to vote. And so we were able to get more than 80% of LGBTQ Americans to get out and vote for Biden. So yeah, it was really, it was a really exciting thing to be a part of. And it also felt really important because, you know, the, the history or the future, I guess I should say of our country was at stake and still is, but that was our opportunity to start turning the tide. And I guess we did. Is that something that you plan on doing again uh, for the next campaign? 
I don't have any commitments to right now. I mean, the, the, nobody is thinking seriously about a presidential campaign just yet anyway. And, and so right now we're focused on the midterms. And uh, so I'm, I'm focused on holding the Senate and the House right now. So we'll see cool. what 2024 looks like. But right now it's congressional elections. Awesome. And you are still actively working towards getting LGBTQ voters out there for the midterms. Yeah, I don't have a choice. It's kind of a thing that I find <laughs> myself doing every day I wake up. So, yeah, well, that's I mean, it's an amazing thing and we definitely need it. And you would think that it would be something that is kind of a no brainer. You know, it's like mm-hmm. well, you don't need to rally LGBTQ plus support because look at the alternatives. Yeah. Um, like, Look at who Biden ran against in the last election. You know, maybe he's going to run again. Maybe it's Ron DeSantis, who is literally oh. gay Satan. I'm allowed to uh-huh. say that it's my show. I can call him gay Satan. Um, <laughs> but he's straight, but he is Satan for gays there. It's so yes. straight Satan for gay men um, and women and transgendered and children, like just awful person. So w- how do you fight against the complacency like in, in the LGBTQ community, which is like, you know what, like there's there, we, we don't need to target those people because they're definitely can't vote for the other guy. Well, you know, I think it's a one person at a time thing. I think we take for granted how uh, politically engaged people might be. You know, I know two gay men who voted for Trump. One of them is uh, the assistant, like a full-time assistant to a drag queen. So, you know, when you think about the profile of somebody who would obviously always vote for the Democrat, you know, he just didn't. And I think the reality is most of us, look, we assume that everybody knows that Roe v. Wade was overturned and that, you know, right to abortion is falling apart across the country. Most Americans don't know that. Most Americans aren't paying that much attention. So when you think about that, the same thing applies to LGBTQ people across the board. Most Americans are really disengaged with politics in general, and a lot of people are overwhelmed. So people think, oh, well, if I pay attention, I have to understand all of it. Well, that's not true. Nobody does. I do this full time and I don't understand all of it, but nobody does. It's, I think, a one step at a time, one conversation at a time thing. But if we want to assume that our friends and family are voting the right way, we shouldn't assume. We should have conversations with them about it. Yeah. And that's exactly why I wanted to do this episode first on the show, because I feel like when people like think, oh, Frankie Grande, they're not like, wow, let's talk politics. But I do actually, I am very invested in what's going on in our country. I've always wanted to be. And um, sometimes I, though, I do feel kind of helpless. Like I'm, mm. I'm watching things burn down around me. I'm like, oh my God, this is, this is horrible. Well, Roe v. Wade, like is, is marriage equality next? Like, what do I do? How do I get involved? And before we answer that question, can we just ask that question? I just got married. So is marriage equality next? I like, mean, yes. Here's the thing. A lot of conservatives will say, oh, well, just because of Roe v. Wade, that doesn't mean that all these other rights are under threat. But one of the Supreme Court justices openly invited challenges to other Supreme Court cases because, look, here's here's the, the, the big picture. So Roe v. Wade was overturned because, in large part, the right to abortion in the first place was predicated upon the concept of a right to privacy. Mm-hmm. And so what the Supreme Court found in this most recent ruling effectively was that that didn't exist. That right to privacy isn't legit. The right to same-sex marriage, the right to have sex with someone of the same gender in the privacy of your home, the right to access pornography, the right to interracial marriage, a lot of uh, the right to access contraception. All those things I just listed are also predicated on the concept of privacy, the right to privacy. And when you consider that 
Republicans, conservatives across the board were saying, oh, they'll never completely overturn Roe versus Wade. And then they did. There's no reason to believe anyone who says, oh, they won't come for marriage equality. Oh, they won't come for interracial marriage. Oh, they won't come for contraception. They are actively coming for these things. Wow. And it's shocking to read and to see in the media. I mean, there's part of me that's hoping that because they are becoming so aggressive, that the pendulum will swing so violently in the opposite direction. Do we think that there might be backlash coming up for the GOP because of these like insane they like oh, it's it's almost like with dark brandon right like we have, mm-hmm. we have now we have dark brandon uh, biden is a meme finally he's a superhero because you know he got his inflation reduction act passed and everyone's obsessed with him now um but like is it emboldening the democratic party a little bit and are we going to maybe be able to get more done because of how aggressive the GOP is becoming well You know, that has happened before. There has been backlash um, before because the conservative movement deliberately tries to take, you know, our community or parts of our community and make us a wedge issue. And in the past, that's hurt them. You know, the marriage equality thing at the time did hurt them. It's different with trans rights, though. Something like 51 percent of Americans believe that changing your gender is morally wrong. So um, we have a lot of PR work to do. Like we need to be having direct conversations, every single one of us, with our friends and family about these things. We can't assume that people understand what it means to be trans. We can't assume that people understand how much of a threat uh, same-sex marriage is under. Excuse me. Sorry, I have um, have something in my throat, but I I think it's uh, Republican hypocrisy. Um, (laughs) Yeah, you know, these things are really at risk and um, it's easy to get overwhelmed. but if each of us goes out of our way to have a conversation with someone we know about how important these things are and how at risk they really are, that's what it takes. People tend to get into denial and not pay attention to it or not, or we assume that people get it and they don't. And so we just have to do the hard work of, well, the tedious work of PR person to person over and over again. And I did a lot of those conversations with people in my life uh, before the last election. And I will tell you that leading with love is definitely the key. Maybe doing a little meditation beforehand because I am so quick to boil. And when I boil, then it just ends up in a shouting match and then no one gets anything done. So, yeah. Well, and to that point, you know, nobody, it, it is not effective to make someone wrong, to try and make, you know, so, so even if you're, you're angry at them, even if you're certain they're wrong, it, when, when you start coming for somebody, they just shut down. You know, yeah. when someone feels attacked, the conversation is effectively over. You might yell after that, but the conversation's over. So I try to come at people who are on the wrong side of issues with love and compassion, because most of the time they f- believe what they believe because they don't have a, they haven't humanized the person that their belief hurts and they don't really get how much it hurts. So if you come at them with love and vulnerability as opposed to making them wrong, there's a much higher likelihood that they're actually going to hear you. Yes. And that is beautiful. And I really hope that when you go, everyone that listens to this goes and has those difficult conversations because they are difficult, but they are what we need in order to get through this, you know, this, these midterms. And now, you know, in two years from now, the next election, are we at the point yet where we are telling people to get out of states like Texas and Florida, like with don't say gay and with these, you know, transgender legislations, like are people leaving? Yes. And I'm of two minds about that. One, I generally want to say to people, you know, if you don't feel safe, do something about it. But we have a larger trend in our society of people moving, people with differing viewpoints moving away from each other. And so more and more year after year, Americans are less and less exposed to people who think differently, love differently, believe differently, 
live differently. And that's not good for the fabric of our society. So if I, my take on this, I was thinking a lot about this last night, um, actually, because it's just been on my mind. If you can tolerate the lack of safety and stay somewhere where you can do more good mm. and you're compelled to do that, I think you should. If it were me, I would hope to think that I would. But if you are in real danger, like if you're the parent, if your parents have a trans kid in Texas right now, you know, there's a chance you could get arrested tomorrow for child abuse. And so I think in that instance, it makes sense to leave. So if you can stay and fight the good fight, consider that. But, you know, your safety does come first. Just, you know, try to think about is a, sacrificing some of your safety worth maintaining the integrity of our society. Are there any organizations that you uh, really like that would help someone in that situation? There are tons and they're, and they're often on the lo- like local on the ground, wherever you are. There are a few in Texas that I was just reading about the other day. I would say the human rights campaign, uh, most states have an equality network. So like, com- like in California, there's equality, California, there's equality for Florida. Those national organizations are really resourced. So reaching out to them is a good place to start. But I would look in your local community or on the state level, local organizations and regional organizations are helping support people. And so a little bit of Googling will go a long way. I feel like people don't quite understand how important the local level is of Mm. government. You know, I think everyone wants to like rally for the presidential candidate, but like forgets that it's all these little people that get up to the top Um, in in terms of like, what do we do to help? Like say someone is really like listening to this for the first time. They haven't really been thinking about being political in their life, but now they're understanding the danger the LGBTQ plus community is in. Like, where do we tell them to start? Yeah, there's no wrong answer to focus on a national election versus a local election. However, you can probably have a lot of impact in local elections that you might not even realize. Remember that, you know, Ron DeSantis is the governor of Florida today, but he held smaller offices before that. All the people who are the pariahs of our society today, you know, Mike Pence was a member of Congress. I think Josh Hawley was attorney general in his home state. So, you know, local and regional elections are what how they build the bench for future, you know, jerks and future, you know, so, so uh, if I were anybody somewhere in America thinking about what can I do to get involved? A, I would say, don't worry that it all feels so overwhelming. You can pick one, you can do a little here, a little there, but local democratic organizations exist everywhere. And so you can get involved by knocking on doors, phone banking, you can even text bank now from home. So look for local democratic organizations. They will be working on getting rallying the votes for local elections and national elections right near you at the same time. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for your amazing advice, for your amazing work that you do for the community. You know, like count on me as someone that you can also call on and be like, yo, we need some help getting the word out. Like we're having an election over here. Da, 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 da. I will post, I will tweet, I will be there myself with uh, um, my uh, dark Brandon shirt. Um, and I will be. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I need a dark Brandon shirt. I bought one immediately. I was so excited about oh. it when I saw it. So yeah, they're, they're online now. So everyone go get a dark Brandon shirt and I'll be there with a rainbow flag and um, uh, anything you need. Um, Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, Your words were invaluable. I'm just so grateful to have you on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. 
My next guest has done so much for our community. The list is literally too long. Not only is she the executive producer of the Glad Media Awards, the most visible LGBTQ awards show in the world, she's commissioned Glad's groundbreaking annual accelerating acceptance report, providing an important window into finding out how the nation really feels about the LGBTQ plus community. In 2018, she launched the Glad Media Institute, focusing on research into queer representation and acceptance in media and Hollywood. And under her leadership, she has evolved Glad from a media watchdog organization to one of the most powerful cultural change agents across industries. Please welcome President and CEO of Glad and my friend, Sarah Kate Ellis. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here today. Oh my it's God. It's great I got- to be with you, my I'm- friend. It's <laughs> so good to see you again. You are the best date for the Glad Media Awards, I think, in the world. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I'm going to put that on my resume. Yes, exactly. The one that I just list, listed. We have to also put best date at the awards. Um, it was my honor and privilege to sit with you at the awards this year. Um, it was it was just so transformative to me. I'm so glad that it is available on Hulu. If anyone hasn't seen it, um, please, please watch it after you watch this interview. But for those people who don't know, will you tell us a little bit about GLAD and what y'all do over at that incredible organization? So what we do at at GLAD is that we are, as you mentioned, cultural change agents. So Mm -hmm. our job is to um, make sure the LGBTQ community is included in every conversation that exists out there because we are in every family, we are in every work environment, we are everywhere. And not only to make sure that we're included, but to make sure it's accurate and fair. Oftentimes, because we are a marginalized community, negative narratives that are false get out about our community. Mm -hmm. And we're really there to make sure that the right narratives are out there and that these narratives are accurate and fair. We've been around over 40 years. Uh, We were started during the AIDS crisis because the reporting on the AIDS crisis was demonizing our community. And like you said, since then we've evolved because culture and what we talk about as a society comes from so many different places. Now it comes from social media. It comes from gaming. It comes from politics. So those are all places that GLAD has had to make ourselves be a part of now in order to make sure that our community is being represented properly and that our needs as a community are being represented. And I'm so glad you said that because on the show, we will be having an entire episode dedicated to gaming. And we're going to get some of the big gay and LGBTQ plus streamers onto the show to talk about, you know, how it is. Frankly, it's very difficult to be, you know, a Twitch streamer and to be uh, out and uh, proud. And we have to figure out how to really try to overhaul things in that community as well. Um, I do. I just want to say on the gaming front, one of the things that I'm really bullish about is that I want to create a report, do an assessment of the platforms to understand what's going on Mm. for our community there, because we are disproportionately on those platforms because as a community, we tend to be early adapters, but we also, it's a safe quote unquote, I'll say that place for us um, Mm. where our identity can sometimes often we hope not be weaponized, but oftentimes now is weaponized. 
And we did that with social media. We now grade all of the platforms and hold them accountable because it's so important because we're there and we're so disproportionately on video games and we need representation there and we need to be protected there. Um, so we're, we're going to be coming there in a much bigger way. Great. And when you're there, please uh, invite my uh, husband and myself to the table because we have lots to tell you about the horrible state of, you know, especially the Twitch community. Like, it's really hard. Um, we get bullied a lot and all the time just for being on there. And then, God forbid you play any of these popular games with an open mic. I mean, the, the amount of times you hear people say horrible gay slurs at each other, it's just wild. So anyway, yes, a lot more to be done in that space. I'm really glad you guys are getting involved and throwing your hat in the ring. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yes, uh, it's it's wild. So you were talking about, you know, the AIDS crisis and, you know, you recently came out and, and tried to help people talk about the monkeypox crisis in a way that was not um, damaging to the community because it is, again, like we are uh, in a place where we're going to be unfairly branded as kind of the people that caused this outbreak and this crisis. So what do you have to say towards uh, people about this, the, how, how to speak about monkeypox moving forward, especially on platforms like their social media and their Instagram, where we feel like we're getting the, sometimes the only information that I'm, I'm hearing these days is from people's personal accounts. I think where MPV is concerned it's a challenge because it's really important to get the word out there because mm -hmm. prevention is obviously our number one fight against this virus. And I think what's really important to understand about um, monkeypox virus is that it is transmittable through skin to skin contact. And one of the biggest ways that it does get transmitted, though, is through intimate contact. Mm -hmm. And that's where it sort of goes. It can move quickly in communities or in areas um, in geographical areas. And so it's really important that we get this information out there. We've worked very closely with the White House in terms of pressuring them and moving them to get the vaccines yep. and to get information out around MPV. So it is so important for us to talk about it and to understand it and be educated about it. It is just as equally important that we don't start stigmatizing yes. because this does not discriminate. There is a, you know, reported within our community in the LGBTQ community, a higher incidence at this moment, but that's temporary. Viruses tend to start in certain sectors and move from there. Um, it's very common. And so I don't want us to get caught up on it, on the LGBTQ factor of this. What's really important about this is that we're all vulnerable to it, yes. no matter who you love or how you identify. And so being preventative about it and understanding and being educated about it is the most important aspect. Yes. Beautifully put. And yes, if you're out there and you're sharing your experience, just make sure that it, everyone knows this is a virus that will, it will affect everyone and anyone completely indiscriminately, you know? So it is not just about one community or another community. So beautifully said, I would love to jump over to the Glad Media Awards for a little bit, because that is where um, we met our first time and where we were just together. It is so important. And I was so inspired by the work that Glad does to encourage what I feel to be, you know, obviously I'm an actor, so 
so maybe I'm a little skewed, but I feel to be one of the most incredible um, devices for change in this world is media and how we are um, seen on television and in films and having more gay representation. And one thing that happened at the media awards was uh, Victoria Alonso, you know, got up and gave this unbelievable speech. You know, it was right after uh, the don't say gay bill just got passed in Florida. And she was like, you know, she called up Bob Chapek and she said, listen, like, we're not going to stand for this. You have to stand with our community. If you are a member of the LGBTQIA community and you work at the Walt Disney Company, the last two or three weeks have been a sad event. I've asked Mr. Chapek for courage. I asked him to look around and truly, if what we sell is entertainment for family, that we don't choose what family. Take a stand for the family. Stop saying that you tolerate us. Nobody tolerates me, let me tell you that. You tolerate a tantrum in a two-year-old, but you don't tolerate us. Since then, we've had the overturn of Roe versus Wade. And now we have more transgender bills that are putting people at risk in Texas and in Florida and around the whole country. Has the media industry, in your opinion, or has GLAD stepped up their work in response to this? Like, has it kind of um, inspired more Victoria Alonso's to say, you know what, now we're coming harder than ever to include these things that are you're saying we're not allowed to? So I would say that absolutely we have to step up. We have been stepping up and we need everyone to step up, though. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest challenges, Frankie, right now is actually the misinformation that's happening mm-hmm. because we are being painted as a community and demonized as a community that more and more of these anti-LGBTQ pieces of legislation are popping up. So Just to give you a state of the union, there are over 300 anti-LGBTQ bills. Most of them are targeted at the trans community. Five years ago, you didn't even see trans people on TV. And so it is a double-edged sword. We are seeing more representation and we're seeing more reaction to that representation. Mm. But we know that representation educates and humanizes communities and people. And so as more stories are being told about our community, we will see more people not taking the misinformation, if you will. And having a deeper understanding and engagement with our community. So we do have to step up. The entertainment industry, I feel, we work very closely with them, as you know, on a daily basis, are stepping up. But we need more stories. We need more diversity in these Mm -hmm. stories. And we need it on all platforms. And we need to be able to hold power accountable when they put out misinformation about our community. Roe v. Wade, very quickly is an LGBTQ issue, it is a health issue. It is so critical to the freedoms and the bodily autonomy that we have as LGBTQ people, as female, as people who can carry babies or, or have babies. It is really, really central to freedom in this in this country. And seeing that being taken away and understanding that the Supreme Court Mm -hmm. is now making these decisions 
for its citizens is a very scary place to be. I will say this, when you look at the LGBTQ community and the rights that we have secured over the past, I would say five, uh, 10 years, they have all, the major ones have been decided at the Supreme Court. So our rights are not safe. And we are right. very clear about that as an organization. And we are working really hard to get them codified for our community, but also to get them federally moved forward so that we're not just sitting at the beck and call of nine Supreme Court judges. Yeah, it's really terrifying. How how, how can we help? Like, how can everyone listening today help you and your mission and, and the LGBTQ plus community achieve these things? So I would say, first and foremost, if you're an ally of our community, please speak up, mm -hmm. especially in the places and spaces where we aren't. So many allies take that for granted and don't even realize. So if they hear something, misinformation mm -hmm. or slurs, please correct the record. And you, you have to, you know, reach a hand out, not with a hammer. I always say you have to win people. You can't beat them into submission. It doesn't work. Voting. Vote, 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 vote. Yes. We all need to vote. When LGBTQ people vote, we decide elections. This midterm election is very important for our community and a lot hangs on the line. So I would say across the board, vote and join GLAAD. We're a membership, GLAAD.org. Come and we have media awards, which are really fun, as Frankie said, <laughs> but we also do some really important, deep work for our community. Yes, you you really do. And speaking of which, can we just touch upon before we're done um, the Glad Visibility Project and the GMI? Because I know that you do so much work in educating companies and corporations on how to um, genuinely interact with our community. Yes, thanks for bringing that up. So what we do is we look at companies and how they use their public platforms, mostly advertising to be inclusive because advertising is pervasive in this in our society. Yet LGBTQ people are in less than 2% of ads. Crazy. This doesn't even make sense. So we're working with these companies to become more inclusive and help them, give them the tools to do that. So if anybody wants to do that, go on our site. We are there and we will respond to you and help you be more LGBTQ inclusive in your advertising, especially. Yes. And there are amazing um, tips for people that are just trying to do it like for the first time, you know, like, I think that's the thing. I feel like people are so scared that they might be like, get backlash from it. And the thing is, no inclusion. You, if you, the more you include, the more people that will have your backs. So there's go check out the website. There's amazing, amazing um, tips for you. If you are an advertiser or you have a company and you want to advertise and you want to, um, you know, be part of the solution, it would be really nice. We would all really appreciate that. Um, Sarah Kate Ellis, you are amazing. This was a, a wonderful conversation as always with you. Thank you so, so, so much for being a part of this show, our, our inaugural episode. And I couldn't think of a, a better person to get it started with. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me and congratulations on all your successes. Mwah. Mwah. I am so excited to talk to our next guest, a distinguished civil rights attorney and advocate. He was the first openly gay person elected to the Pennsylvania General Assembly. And after coming out to his college football team, he made history, leading them to the Division II National Championship. And he remains the only former NCAA football captain to have ever come out. What? Welcome, Representative Brian Sims of Pennsylvania. Welcome, my friend. 
Frankie. Thank you for having me. I cannot believe you you referenced my college football background. I don't hear that often. Really? I mean, to me, it's just so unbelievably shocking that that still is true. Like where, what? It's 2022 and you still remain the only former NCAA football captain to have ever come out. How's that possible? What's going on? I think they're all gay. You have to prove to me that they're straight. Yeah, well, I'm sure you probably know some of them are, but um, we don't need to get into that on this podcast. But I just, I'm so grateful that you're here. And, um, you know, interestingly, just right off the bat, like I came out to my fraternity. That was the first people that I came out to was Sigma Phi Epsilon. You know, they were my brothers. Everyone was straight. Um, there was one gay brother in the fraternity, but it was like the straight broy jock all around like party dance floor, get the girls down there kind of fraternity. And I came out to them and it helped me so, so much. So since we started there, like, what was that like, you know, coming out to a football team? Were they like, were they supportive? Did it help you come out to other people in your life? You know, they were, and I'm out of college. It's been a while. I'm, I'm 20 years out of college and those guys are still my best friends. My coming out was one of those things where I had just, you, you mentioned going to a national championship. We'd actually just lost it when I came out to my team. And my, my teammates did this thing my last semester in college. They sort of came out to me. I wasn't sure if I was going to come out to them or not. And then a couple of my teammates sat me down and asked. And then unbeknownst to me, they sort of gathered my team up and said, hey, you've got a problem with Brian, you've got a problem with all of us. And uh, it was clear to me that those guys had my back and that they still do to this day. All of them have become coaches and their parents and teachers, a lot of them. And and to this day, I still have this conversation about what it was like coming out to them and, and how they how they have sort of carried that forward in their lives all the time. And this was in Pennsylvania? It was. It was in the Poconos in northeastern Pennsylvania. Amazing. And mine was at Muhlenberg College in Allentown, Pennsylvania. So Muhlenberg well. Yeah, that's so crazy. You know, Pennsylvania. I mean, it's so interesting because, you know, it is uh, a purple state, right? Like, you know, we, we go, we don't know which way we're going. We're going red or blue, depending on which which year we're in. Um, so, you know, there are people that are on both sides of the of the border in, in, the, in your state, you know, that you are a representative for. How do you find, um, you know, negotiating that sometimes? You, it sounds like you have to deal with both sides of the aisle all the time. I am reminded often that the politics of Pennsylvanians are very different than the politics of Pennsylvania's elected officials. Mm. My mom and dad are, are uh, both retired lieutenant colonels in the army. One's a Republican, one's a Democrat. They are wonderful people. Their politics are wonderful. And, you know, the way that they engage with each other and with the world around them is, is a model. And so for me, one of the things that I've always known is that Pennsylvania is the last great gerrymandered state in the United States. Democrats outnumber Republicans, and yet Republicans, because they got to draw the maps 10 years ago, get to draw maps that put them way in, in sort of false control. And so I both I know the reality that my state is significantly more centrist or progressive than the legislature is, but I also know that the legislature doesn't accurately represent even my, I think, my traditional Republican Pennsylvanian, who is a lot more forward thinking on women's and reproductive rights, racial and ethnic justice, LGBTQ rights than the everyday Republican legislator in, in Pennsylvania. So that word that we learned in fifth grade, uh, whatever, American history class actually were, like is important, gerrymandering? <laughs> it's, it is. It's an actual yeah. tool that is used against us in certain states. And it's been used really, really badly here in Pennsylvania. Virginia was a, a similar state that saw, you know, gerrymandering really hold back the state from a whole bunch of progressive change that, that its citizens were ready for. The, the people of Pennsylvania are far more thoughtful about their politics than the politicians in Pennsylvania. 
is there a way to fight fight against it other than get electing new people? So there's two ways. One is that, and you you just referenced it. It's not just electing new people. It's who are elected? You know, right now, more women, more people of color, more LGBTQ people, more people from disadvantaged backgrounds, more second generation immigrants are running for office in America than at any time in our history. And that excites me because I see those people as the antidote to sort of top down privilege politics. And so that's a big part of it. But the second is to is to be engaging with our elected officials. Like I say, it's never been easier in American politics to actually engage with our elected officials and to call them out. You know, I, I think one of the things that that up until I joined the legislature about 10 years ago is that most elected officials felt sort of shielded from the truth of what they were saying by whether it was the press or just the dis- this distance between them and their constituents. But that that distance is is largely gone away. When you see your elected officials behaving badly, let them know. When you see them behaving well, let them know. But those are two things we don't do much of right now. That's really smart. And it's true. I do see it. I see it very much, especially with, you know, the um, monkeypox that just came out. You know, there's so many um, of my um, LGBTQ elected officials, especially in New York, and I'm really engaging with them on on social media platforms and saying, like, thank you for this. Like, this is so wonderful. Or like, this isn't enough. Can I have more information? So, you know, it is true. Everyone is right at our fingertips for the first time. So we can actually make a difference in um, the actions of our elected officials. It's not just about getting new people elected. Very, very smart. Never heard that before. Very, very smart. Um, so speaking of things that are wild, wacky, and crazy that I didn't understand, conversion therapy is now, finally now banned in Pennsylvania, but like before it wasn't? Like how, what, what, what happened? Why is this bill so important? And how did it eventually come to pass? I thought it was something of the past. It's not in fact, and in a weird way, it's still isn't completely. So here, here's the answer. So 10 years ago, I joined the legislature in 2012. And I was right about the time that California and New Jersey were leading the country in banning what we call conversion abuse. There's no therapy about it. There's nothing therapeutic about conversion abuse. The American Psychological Association, the American Psychiatric Association, American Medical Association, they all agree categorically that conversion abuse is not therapeutic. In fact, the DSM-4, which lists all uh, diseases and um, sort of maladies in, in the world, removed homosexuality 40 years ago. And so so what California and New Jersey did was take two very different approaches. One decided to say that if you were a therapist practicing conversion abuse, you were practicing outside the scope of your practice and therefore you could lose your license. The other said that if you were practicing conversion abuse, you were actually abusing a child and abuse is illegal and therefore you were committing a crime. We in Pennsylvania, I, I, I introduced that first bill 10 years ago. The plan was to try to criminalize it. That was not going to fly with our legislature. And so we have moved for the last decade towards this idea that if you're practicing conversion abuse, you're practicing outside the scope of your practice. What the governor did with his executive order is strengthen the resolve that no state dollars, no tax dollars can go to anybody that's doing conversion abuse. Can it still technically legally happen until the federal government or the Supreme Court bans it? Yeah, there are some limited circumstances where a child in Pennsylvania could still be subject to conversion abuse. It's just harder than ever before for that to happen. Is this this case with many states across the country? I don't I don't know off the top of my head. Yeah, it's a real mixed bag in the same way that only 30 some odd states have non-discrimination policies that are LGBTQ inclusive. You know, we, we don't see a majority of states yet have conversion therapy bans, but they are moving forward on them. And part of that had to do with a Ninth Circuit court case out of California when California's ban was first challenged in the courts and it was eventually upheld. That kind of a ban has, has really been used as the prototype for, for further bans. 
Oh my goodness. Well, we have a lot of work to do. And, um, you know, speaking of work that we still have to do, obviously, you know, this is the year of don't say gay. It was a big shakeup for the entire community. And as you know, we've both shared our coming out stories and how amazing they were. What, you know, part of don't say gay is that they're saying that we, that students or teachers rather have the um, responsibility to out their students to their parents. What's your take on, on how dangerous it is for that to be in a piece of legislature? It's not just that I think it's dangerous. It's that we know categorically, empirically, that it is dangerous. It's a type of abuse. It's frankly, it's re-abusing them in a way that they fear that their parents might. But outing a child to their parents is either ensuring that that child is abused at home or receives some type of, uh, I'll call it a negative psychological impact, or it's re-engaging that negative psychological impact. I think it should be illegal. And I, I do think it is, I do think it's abusing a child. It is. It, it is. And also it just subjects them to so much ridicule within the school system, within itself, you know, like, I mean, I can't even, uh, there's, I wasn't out when I was a kid and I was getting made fun of already, like, you know, for, for whatever, what I was wearing, my glasses, my, my yeah, trapper keeper, whatever it is. So I can't imagine like being told by any community. So like this person is wrong. This person is now going to be out because the law says that what they're doing is wrong. I can't imagine how dangerous that that is going to play out to be for kids. And I think we really do need to protect them as much as we can. So, uh, you know, I'll be voting in Florida because that's where I spend most of my time. So there we go. You know, Frankie, I've never met um, a queer person that doesn't remember being ridiculed or poked fun at or made fun of in some way or not. Me and everybody, every LGBTQ person I've ever met in my life, we remember those moments. I would largely guess that half the times that people were doing that, they didn't know that I or others were actually LGBTQ. It was just what they thought was the worst slam or slander somebody. We all remember those things. I can imagine, I'd like to think that if a teacher approached my mom, my army colonel Republican mother, and said, hey, you know, 14-year-old Brian is is gay, my mom would say to mind your own damn business. Yeah. And she'd be right to say it. And it would be a part of her approach to small government and and it would be a part of her approach to to how she approaches Republicanism. Yeah, it's very much what they would say to any liberal that would come up and tell them to do something. You know, they say, my own damn business. So I hope that everyone says, mind your own damn business, because it is true. This this law should go both ways and say, well, if it's going to protect um, it, whatever straight children from being exposed to gay people or gay narratives or gay agendas or or an inclusive environment, then it should also protect kids from being exposed to being outed. Like it's just, it's such a one-sided bill and it, it, it is very upsetting. It was very upsetting to me when it first came out. But um, so uh, this is just kind of one example of the GOP ramping up their attacks against the LGBTQ plus community and especially including Roe versus Wade, as that is also a gay issue. Uh, reproductive rights are parts of gay rights. Um, and so what do we do as a community? First of all, one of the things we need to recognize is that it's not a stretch to be talking about marriage equality with respect to the Roe v. Wade decision. In fact, the one of the dissenting justices in, uh, or one of the uh, agreeing uh, justices in his separately written opinion referenced marriage equality as something that could potentially be on the chopping block. And so this isn't, this isn't uh, I think, the LGBTQ communities uh, you know, sort of trying to operate in a space where we're very clear about what, what's happening here and we're clear about that because it was written into the Supreme Court's opinion. There are more of us that believe in equality across the board than don't in this country. And we forget mm-hmm. it all the time. We tend to think that this country is 50-50 on these issues and others about equality, and it is not. 
But what ends up happening is because we think of ourselves as sort of these islands. I believe in women's and reproductive rights. I believe in LGBTQ equality. I believe in racial justice, that we think we're islands. And we're not. We're big old continent, but we don't behave like it. And so one of the first things that I think we need to do is we need to sort of pick up the righteous indignation of having both the moral high ground and having it robbed by from us by people who lack the ethics and the morality to be making these decisions about us. And I think we're sort of finding ourselves tied up and try to sort of rationalize like how could these people say this but do that and believe this but vote that way and they want us tied up in those knots while they're taking away our fundamental liberties and so for me it's a it's about look sort of trying to look past the rationale i'm not trying to understand why somebody doesn't think that i should be allowed to get married it doesn't matter to me why they don't think i should be allowed to get married i was blessed to live in a country that says i won't be treated differently under the law because of their interpretation of their faith so i think what i'm hoping for from more people is is i want to see more of us standing up and now what that means is not necessarily standing up for yourself standing up for the people that you say you're an ally of no trans person in the world has ever needed to hear, oh, I support trans rights more than they've needed you to say it to the people that don't. No woman in my life needs to hear that I'm a feminist more than the men who are trying to take away her rights need to hear it from me. And I think that's the big problem is that people don't know. We all know what privilege is. Use the shit out of your privileges. My broken ass wrong privileges. I woke up in this meat sack this morning and I'm going to get privileged because of it. The only right thing to do with those privileges is to walk into spaces where that gains me something and try to break down barriers. And that's what I want from people. I don't want us telling each other how much we support each other. Tell the people who don't. Amen. That was beautifully put and so brilliant. Thank you so much for saying that. That is so eloquently put. What what is what is next for you? Uh, can I? When am I going to get to vote for you for president? Because I want to. Listen, I, <laughs> I tell people a lot. I, I think when the first queer president is elected, I'll have helped get her elected. But I. I don't think it's going to be me. <laughs> well, you got my vote. Whatever, we got my support. I think you're a genius, and I think that you're so eloquent and and a really wonderful representative uh, for the community, and especially in a, a, the great state of Pennsylvania. So, th- thank you so much for being on the show and for sharing so honestly um, your experience and your opinions about everything that's going on today. It was really, really invaluable. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and uh, enjoy the greenery. My God, if for everyone who can't see what's going on, uh, Brian is in the most beautiful backdrop I've ever seen and it's not virtual so uh, go enjoy that nature out there it looks fake but it's not frankie thank you thank you also for doing this work more the more stories of ours that we tell the more change we make politically and so you know these kinds of stories will will do more to inform more to change more than any elected official in the country thank you my friend and thanks for coming to see titanic it was so awesome to have you in the audience oh my goodness i'll be back My next guest is truly amazing. Not only is she the first openly transgender person elected and seated in a U.S. state house, she's an author, a finalist for the Advocates Person of the Year, and was featured on the cover of Time magazine. Welcome, Virginia Delegate Danica Roam. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's great to be here. Oh, thank you so much. It means so much. And your work is just so unbelievable for the entire LGBTQ plus community. I mean, we know that your book talks about your history making election, but I was wondering, could you tell us a little bit about the race and what it was like? Sure. So the reason that I wrote Burn the Page, uh, which is uh, my first day, my debut book, it's out through Viking Books. So you can uh, get the ebook, uh, uh, either the hardcover or the audiobook, which I narrated myself, by the way. Awesome. Uh, so that's available now. And the reason I wanted to write that was I wanted to not only tell the stories that, you know, basically 
got me to where I am today, but I wanted to inspire other people to own their narratives and to set fire to the stories they don't want to be in anymore. And so that they can create change, that they can basically be their own trailblazer in that regard. And it's not just a political story in that, you know, I have a lot of identifiers beyond being, you know, a transgender legislator. Mm -hmm. Also, you know, I, I, I always kind of like to put it as I'm a Transgender reporter, yogini, vegetarian, metalhead, stepmom, who was unemployed, uninsured, and driving a $324.92 Dodge Shadow when I launched my first campaign in 2017. And so I did not come from central casting at all. But now I'm in my third term in office, I'm running for state senate in 2023 in one of Yay. the most competitive seats in the entire Commonwealth. And we've passed 32 of my bills into law, including 10 to feed hungry kids, three for LGBTQ equality, and a whole lot of others. So you don't have to be, not just in politics, but in life in general, you don't have to be what other people, especially discriminatory politicians, tell you you're supposed to be. You can be mm -hmm. who you are. You can thrive because of who you are, not despite it. That's amazing. I did uh, Big Brother. And, you know, for the longest time, I was like the gay person. Like they were like, oh, that's that gay person. Let's ask him all the gay questions. And you represent the entire gay community because you were on Big Brother and you're gay. And it's like, it's it, in many ways that is true, but in many ways that is not true. And I have, a, you know, like I'm also like a sci-fi fantasy freak and a, and a nerd and all of the other amazing identifiers that make up and me. I've, I've either read or listened to all the Outlander books. I have, yes. you know, I, I was at Metallica like uh, two weeks ago, you know, like this is, I have a complete different life that's not just about being LGBTQ. And at the same time, we are multifaceted people. We yes. are not a monolith, you know, and so yes, you know, who we are in terms of our sexual orientation or our gender identity, that informs our worldview, that certainly colors our experience that we see day to day, but we have other interests other than debating bathrooms and, you know, like, True. oh my God, what time is the club open until? We have other <laughs> things about us that are also interesting. So do you ever, what's it like? And is, do you ever feel pressure because you are the first, you know, like, what is that? What is that like? Do you feel like pressure to inspire the next? Do you feel um, pressure to behave in a certain way, shape or form as the first? So I am viciously well aware that anything that I do means that other trans people will be judged based on that. And again, we're not a monolith. I, as a white trans woman from Northern Virginia, will never know the experience of a trans woman of color who speaks English as a second language, who is undocumented, who didn't have formal education. I will not know that life on a personal lived experience level. What I do know is what it's like to be single out and stigmatized because of who I am. What I do know is what it's like for other people to count me out. And to, you know, at one point before I ran for office, I was one for 36 in my job search where I was working two jobs. I was making $15 an hour for 30 hours a week with no benefits uh, to the news editor of a newspaper. And on the weekends, I was a delivery driver for $5 an hour plus tip over in an African club uh, place in Arlington. And, you know, I've lived that life. I know what it's like to be in my early 30s uninsured. At the same time, I also recognize the privilege that I also have, right? And so it's so important for me to just really emphasize and to reemphasize people that we 
not only are not a monolith, which I keep repeating here, but no, do. Keep we need to true. have our lived experiences brought to the table because that allows us to inform other people about things that they don't necessarily know about or have been left behind. And, you know, in the last year alone, we've had more in, across the country, we've had 320 plus anti-LGBTQ bills introduced mm. to state legislatures nationwide. And Virginia is not exempt from that, by the way. How many of these people know a damn thing about what we go through in our day-to-day lives? Have a damn thing about what it means to be a trans kid in school? Not, they don't, they don't. And at the same time, they are completely just making stuff up over and over and over again, or they're using the same discriminatory tactics that were used by Virginia's former governor, Harry Byrd, aka the architect of massive resistance. Like, mm. it's incredible when you actually look at the history of this to see the exact same playbook being used. And you're just like, maybe if you took a minute to actually talk to people and learn about people who were different from you, then you would say, hey, maybe, you know, it doesn't have to be scary to be the first person to do something or whatever. But I will tell you, it's a lot better now than when I was sworn in, there was one. It was just me. Mm-hmm. Now there are eight out in C mm-hmm. train state legislators nationwide. Lee Finkney, I uh, uh, think he would just won a, a primary over uh, Minnesota, by the way. And uh, Zoe Zephyr won over in Montana, won her primary. So they are both highly likely to be elected um, this fall. And there's a number of other trans candidates who are on the ballot in state legislatures, as well as local offices nationwide right now. And um, I'm also, I'm the executive director of Emerge Virginia. So my job is to train Democratic women to run for office. Awesome. And um, our upcoming training will begin in October. And we're going to have a you know co- cohort that is reflective of the new American majority. And we are included in that. <laughs> and so yes. I want people to recognize that you know what? Yeah, things are hard right now. They are definitely hard right now. And we have to be the ones who step up and change it. We can't wait for some other savior to come our way and say, oh my God, we're Frankie, it's uh where oh, we're here. You don't have to do anything now. We're here to save the day. No, we can't <laughs> no. just bitch on Twitter. We will also do that, but we have to get active. We have to actually show up at subcommittee hearings and full committee hearings in front of local offices and state and federal and we have to also show our joy to the world. So it's not just that people see us as victims, but as people who are human beings who experience all facets of life and that we can be really funny and we can be really miserable. We can be the most kind people you've ever met. And some of us can't stand each other. You know, it's just, we are part of the human experience as much as anyone else's and we deserve a seat at the table as much as anyone else. Oh my God. And thank God for you because even just you, you, said it in a way that I've almost never heard it before, but you just made it so plain to see that like we all have traits and similarities, like doesn't matter anything, what community we are from, but that there is things that unify us and make us human to each other. And you are in a unique position because you're also in a purple state. So how do you have conversations with the other side of the aisle that are effective in, in communicating without it being, you know, I guess, um, I feel like so many of, of the conversations we have today are actually creating more of a boundary or more of a border. Like it's very, very it's like, confronting. So how do you so, do that in a purple state? 
I was raised by my Republican mother who wow. uh, last voted for a Democrat for president in 1976. And I quote, and that was a mistake. All right. <laughs> so in order for me to talk to uh, Republican colleagues where I'm, you know, in the Virginia House of Delegates, the Republicans have 52 to 48 Democratic or there's a Republicans have a 52 to 48 majority in the state Senate. Democrats have 21 to 19 majority. Mm. And that means that if you want a bill to pass through the General Assembly, it's got to have bipartisan support. It has to. It literally can't get to the governor's desk without it. And keep in mind, we have a, you know, a Republican governor as well. And mm-hmm. yet nine of my bills were signed into law this year. It's because I don't go out of my way to antagonize mm-hmm. and to be personally malicious to the people I work with. I work in good faith. I really try to be the workhorse rather than the show horse, which is really interesting when you're the first out trans person in the state legislature and you've got it. You know, my first day there, I had a phalanx of uh, reporters and photographers trailing me everywhere I was going. I'm like, I just want to do a good job. And, you know, and at the same time, I've at least worked enough worked up enough credibility whereas even when people disagree not if but when they disagree with me they know i'm doing this because i genuinely believe in what i'm doing and i think that is really the heart of what you have to do is you have to communicate with the other legislators and talk to them as human beings and you're going to have a lot of areas where you will find common ground maybe not on our civil rights unfortunately but for example feeding hungry kids tends to be pretty popular um so you know that's one of those things i've done that's amazing. And I hate to take it to a dark place, but I, I don't know that those tactics are going to work on everyone. I'm a metalhead. I dwell in darkness, my friend. Yes, exactly. Well, then <laughs> let's go. Let's get out our, let's shred because I want to talk about what do we do in the face of really ignorant and dangerous politicians like Ron DeSantis and what's going on in Florida? Like how, how do we attack those problems? Well, with first, people like he's that? up for re-election this year, so go try to unseat him. That's at yeah. least worth it. And look, I know he's the heavy favorite. I get all that. At the same time, don't let him just glide. You know, this is the sort of thing where it's like, if we give up and we consider someone to be inevitable, well, my predecessor was in office for 26 years over 13 terms as the self-described chief homophobe of Virginia, who the year I ran alone in 2017, along with the bathroom bill and all the other crap, had introduced four pieces of anti-LGBTQ legislation. And who did he lose to? The first out he had trans state legislator, right? So don't tell me it's too hard. I wouldn't be in office if it was. That's amazing. And 100% true. 100% true. Um, and I can't wait. So, and these are all the topics that you tackle in your book, right? We're going to hear about. Absolutely. The- so if you check out Burn the Page, I promise it'll make you laugh. There's as much about heavy metal in there <laughs> as there is about <laughs> politics. And you'll also go through my journey as an LGBTQ you know, person coming to terms with who I, you know, who I was and who I am. And what that's all, you know, and doing that in the context of being a reporter and in the context of, you know, being a candidate for office in context of spending 13 years in Catholic school, you know, there's a lot to unwrap there. And I try to keep a funny face on it while I do it. But yeah, I've gone through a lot of trauma and a lot of tragedy too. And I'm still here. So I mean, sometimes are the things that make us stronger. Um, And so I'm definitely going to get the audiobook. I love audiobooks. They're my favorite. I'm really glad that you narrate them. Uh, recently, the federal appeals court just ruled that the ADA would include gender dysphoria amongst one of its protective classes. Can you talk a little bit about um, what that means for uh, the community? Sure. So on the one hand, I do like the idea 
of making sure that there is a backstop when people are trying to take our civil rights away or deny them in the first place, that there is something that the federal government is going to be able to do to rely on. At the same time, in Virginia, for example, from 2020 to 2021, we passed about two dozen pro-LGBTQ equality bills. And in doing so, we passed the Virginia Values Act and we passed uh, HB 1049, which added uh, gender identity and sexual orientation to about 70 different sections of code for non-discrimination status. And so I have to emphasize strongly that while a court ruling that goes our way can be helpful, mm-hmm. nothing is better than explicit language, whether it's in federal code, state code, or local ordinance that says LGBTQ people are protected because mm-hmm. we are human beings when we exist. Like specifying the word sexual orientation, gender identity, while we shouldn't have to do that. And as the Equal Rights Amendment that I voted for and I have tattooed on my arm says equality of rights under the law should not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex, to discriminate against someone on account of sexual orientation or gender identity is to inherently discriminate against them on account of sex. That's even been reaffirmed in the Bostic ruling, for example. Hmm. However, we also know that Bostic is not all-encompassing. This was just for employment, which means that we have a lot more work to do at the federal level and state legislatures really across the country to really make sure that trans people, especially right now who are taking the brunt of all attacks, but also gay people and especially gay kids and trans kids, you know, who are just, you know, it doesn't matter where in the country you're going, you're finding legislators who are willing to put up these terrible bills in the first place. I just have to say with that, that we have to demand explicit protection so that Mm -hmm. there is no ambiguity about who we are and that we are discriminated against on that account. People say all the time, oh, well, why don't you just have non-discrimination in general? Why do you have to specify all of it? I just don't discriminate. Because if you leave it up to ambiguity, what ends up happening is someone says, oh, I wasn't discriminating. And then you know what ends up happening? Someone somewhere who is in a position of power agrees with them and someone's rights get trampled over. When you specify it, however, then it's much more going to work out in your favor and have your civil rights protected. That's what this is about. And don't just rest on the you know outcome of a really good ruling. Make sure that you are codifying the ever-living hell out of it right now because God knows we need it. Yeah. Well, let's get you up to the federal level so we can do that. <laughs> I would prefer not to do that. Uh, I, I, I work well in state. Thank you. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. All right. Well, then, then let's get the message up the chain. We'll just bring hey, it I up am running chain. for state Senate in 2023, though, so I uh, encourage people to uh, follow me online and uh, you know support me where you can. We will. We will. And thank you for sharing um, your, a little bit of your story with us. And I think you're an inspiration for all the things that make you who you are. So thank you for being here. Well, thank you for giving me the platform and for sharing the space with me today as well. I'm really grateful that you did. And thank you for just giving people a place where they know they belong. Let's go change the world. Let's do it. Do it. <laughs> See you there. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening to our very first episode, Red, White, and Q on Fridays with Frankie's on Channel Q. This has been such an amazing, amazing episode. I am so inspired by the incredible people that we have. Listen, our country might be in a very dangerous, very scary place right now, but we have a lot of amazing people who are working hard to change it. So do what they said. Get out. Get out in your local elections and support them online. See what Glad is up to, you know? Like, let's 
make sure that we get uh, Danica Rome reelected. And of course, let's support President Biden as we move forward. And hopefully Ryan Basham will be up on there um, getting the LGBTQ plus community to rally around our uh, only Democratic candidate. So let's uh, let's go to work, everybody. This was a really, really inspiring hour. And I'm, I'm just so grateful that you all listened. Make sure you follow me wherever you get your social media at Frankie J Grande on all platforms and uh, make sure you listen and subscribe and follow to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts and that you uh, listen to Channel Q Radio and you can hear the next episode when we go live. Thank you so much for listening and uh, go change the world.